0: Foundation Radio is brought to you by 10th Ward Barbershop. Serving the historic 10th Ward in downtown Lawrenceville, 10th Ward Barbershop is a full-service barbershop offering quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. Adam gets his hair and beard trimmed by the owner of the shop, Ryan Kane, and he loves the laser point precision cuts and lineup he provides to him and countless other satisfied customers. But you don't have to take Adam's word for it. WWE superstars Corey Graves and The Fiend, Bray Wyatt, frequent 10th Ward for all their hair and beard trimming needs. Right now, all cuts and trims are by appointment only, so head over to their website at 10th thwardbarbershopcom and book your appointment now with Kane, Jordan, and the rest of the team at Tenth Ward Barbershop. That's 10 T H W A R D Barbershop.com. And we thank them for supporting the podcast.
1: and welcome to Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Bernard. Thank you so much for joining me today. My guest today is an activist, a public health worker, a former candidate for the 3rd Congressional District of Philadelphia, as well as for city controller in Philadelphia. My guest is Alexandra M. Hunt. How are you today? Thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for the introduction with my middle initial. I appreciate that. Listen, I wanted to
1: be formal because all the notes have your middle initial. So I figured, you know, being being more appropriate and official is always the best way to go. I want to know, how much you're enjoying this heat wave in Philadelphia as much as I am. It is particularly brutal this year.
2: Oh, I hate it. It's, it's <laughs> horrible. I, I also have a Husky. My dog is a Husky. So he is miserable and we're spending a lot of time in air conditioning.
1: Yes. Yeah. The air conditioning just broke in my house recently. So it's been like particularly brutal. The Window units just don't keep up as well as I initially anticipated. (laughs) It just, it feels, you know, I know this has become kind of a joke for people, but I feel like it's hotter now than it ever has been. Am I the only one who feels that way? Or is it just like, it just feels that it is way worse in, in most aspects as far as the heat is concerned?
2: It is not a feeling, it is actually (laughs) breaking uh, world records for hottest temperatures pretty much each day this past week.
1: I was going to say, I read something, I think it was last week, that the, the four or five hottest days on record in like, you know... A hundred some odd years of, of recording were the hottest in earth's history, which I feel like is a major problem. we're going to get into a lot of the you know the politics and, and your stances here, but I want to talk more about your early years. I know that you grew up in Rochester, and I want to talk about that. Tell me about Alexander growing up and what shaped your worldview you know uh, in politics
2: I yeah, grew up in Rochester, New York. Both my parents are teachers, my dad is a history teacher, my mother was a French teacher. She's now retired. My dad's also a soccer coach and I have a twin brother who is on the spectrum. Oh, okay. We lived in the city of Rochester when I was first born and uh, they, they taught at a suburban school. So I saw the contrast of what my neighborhood friends had and didn't have and uh, what my school friends had and didn't have, which was a lot, um, a, a lot that they had and, less in the neighborhood and my my dad would just he's a history teacher he likes to promote debate and conversation and one of the big issues for him was the discrepancies with schools public schools versus in the city versus public schools in the suburbs and he was always asking me you know how would you if you could do anything how would you fix this how like are you aware of how little have, that their books are torn apart, they can barely learn in the city schools, and just that was really, education was always really important in my household. And then with having a twin brother on the spectrum, we were were kept together uh, in a developmental sense, but it was very apparent to me early on that uh, he needed more time. And was not getting the proper support that he needed to take his time in his development. He was also pretty severely bullied.
1: Mm. Yeah, my uh, one of my children is on the the spectrum as well. Um, my second son, and it's. It's interesting to see the disparity when it comes to the education system. One of the first things that we were told when he was diagnosed, I think he was about 18 months old when we like, we we knew we, we initially thought he was deaf and then, you know, we, we went through all the testing and everything else. And one of the first things that we were told was you have to be his advocate, right? Like you have to be loud. You have to be forceful. If they tell you no, get it, keep moving until they tell you yes, um, did that? Did you see that from your parents as well? What was that like for your parents raising a child on the spectrum in the school system? And then did he get the services that he need, needed while he was there?
2: It was complicated because they taught at the school that we went to. Mm-hmm. And so when there were issues raised, when when not enough was being done to protect him or to allow him to develop in a healthy and safe environment. It was hard to hold the school accountable as parents when they were also teachers and also subject to the, um, the standards that the school was passing down. So middle school was particularly hard on both of us. Uh, And, and it was because the school just didn't provide the resources that he needed to, Um, to thrive and didn't protect him from the, uh, the bullying Mm -hmm. and my parents could only do so much and they really felt like their hands were tied. And then me as an outspoken twin sister, I was pissed. I was pissed at the school. I was pissed at my parents and I was the advocate who was like, this is unacceptable. And I don't know why you're okay with allowing the school to neglect my brother.
1: Did it ever get better for him as you started advocating or did it just stay consistent all the way through your high school years?
2: It, I would, I mean, this is really his story, but I would say that from my perspective, it did not get better. Mm -hmm. He went to college at SUNY Brockport and had such a tough experience there that he I was worried. I was worried that, uh, we were going to lose him. Oh, wow. Um, and, and so when he said during our junior year, well, it was my senior year. I graduated a year early and in his junior year that he wanted to drop out and not finish. I was like, I'll handle our parents. I'll help you get a job back home. Like get out. I, I, it was just, it was so hard on him.
1: That's a shame. I'm sorry to hear that. But, um, I uh, I know that, like I said, we're struggling with that, and that's a that's a touch point for me in my own life and trying to navigate the waters of of having a child growing up in the spectrum with an older brother who is also kind of you know on the spectrum, but also in another league developmentally. It's very it's a complicated dance, and um, that's something that I've noticed as well in his education, and it, and it feels like we share that dynamic where it's like. You have to be that advocate. You have to be that person, that voice for your, you know, for your loved one, because otherwise you're not, you're not going to get anywhere. And I, and how much of that influenced that political part of you? Because I, I, I've watched your, you know, I've watched your speeches, I've watched your announcements and I've, I've followed you in the news for, for years now. And, and there's a, there's a fire when you speak about these issues and, and, and the platforms that you have, did that influence you ultimately, or was it just like that was the flashpoint for you?
2: I, it it has absolutely influenced me in my advocacy. There was a flashpoint for why I chose to run for office, but in my advocacy, having a twin brother on the spectrum, my day one, needing to be an advocate for him, this is what I was taught of how to love people. You you speak up. You you speak against the system when you see it hurting. And so this is this is how I know how to love and. In my advocacy and running for office, I was loving this city of Philadelphia. I was loving the people in it. And that's why I could speak, I can speak with passion, is because I, I feel it in my heart.
1: So I know that you went to the University of Richmond, you received your bachelor's degree there, and then you moved to Philadelphia after you were done. You've spoken a little bit about it, but what exactly was it that drew you to Philadelphia?
2: Um, so I graduated a year early from Richmond, UR. And then I went straight into a master's degree. That master's degree program was at Drexel. And I I got into a couple of different master's degree programs, but Philadelphia seemed like the most interesting city. So I moved here. And then pretty quickly, I fell in love with this city. I decided that this was going to be home base. I was going to put down roots. I really didn't want to leave Philadelphia after being introduced to it.
1: Now, I also read that you were an EMT for a period of time while you were here. Is that true? Yes. Tell me about that experience, because it's going to tie into the next question that I have. But I was a firefighter for many years, so I, I feel like that dynamic of my worldview was built in You know, crisis response.
2: So being an EMT is, it's complicated because you are showing up to, you're potentially showing up to the worst day of someone's life. And having to think on your feet and respond and be compassionate, but firm calm them um, and handle the situation. And then at the same time, you also see the the way the system is built to uh, favor and provide care for certain people and neglect and abuse other groups of people. So, as an EMT, you work alongside fire, you work alongside police, and and you see who is really showing up in certain mentalities, um, which does tie into my politics as well, because I've seen, I've witnessed police brutality, um, and it was different with fire. So as, with fire, were you a medic as well, or, or were you... Purely firefighter.
1: No, just purely firefighter. My brother was a, a firefighter EMT, so he had that dynamic as well. But uh, yeah, there were definitely times where I could see the disparity, you know, and, and it felt very much like there was this dynamic at play that certain people were approaching certain situations in a very specific way that, if, that tracks. It's very, it's hard to explain unless you're in there. And then you're also, while you're dealing with all of that inside of your head and then, you know, in the moment, you're dealing with the fact that like, oh, we have to cut somebody out of this car or we have to put this fire out. And it's just, it's this very, I don't know how to explain it. But <laughs> you explained it way better than I did. But it's this very unique feeling where am I really doing as much as I can to help these people? Or am I, am I being handcuffed by situations that are outside of my control?
2: Yeah. there. I mean, every situation is unique, but I think the disparities that, where I really noticed them were in, uh, acceptance of somebody's perception of their own pain. Mm-hmm. It was in mental health calls. It was in drug user calls. Um, when it, when it was such a high crisis situation, like CPR was in progress or you're cutting someone out of a car, there was less of, there is less bias in that. And it was more down to the nitty gritty of someone is dying. We need to act now. Um, but with mental health phone calls and, and people having a crisis that what you couldn't readily see blood, that was where you saw bias and, and not believing people and, and their own telling of what they were experiencing.
1: Now, I know that you went and you were a crisis responder, um, at the Parkway encampments as well. Um, tell me more about that. Cause I'm, I, I remember that time in Philadelphia and I, I would love to hear your story about that.
2: Wow, you have you have really studied my story. You did your homework.
1: I I did my homework here. That's what I do here on the show.
2: Um, The the encampment formed during the pandemic. It was a it was a a need of community during a time when we were very isolated from each other. And they set up tents. They really kind of organized themselves. They were finding ways to communicate with one one end of the encampment with the other and uh, provide resources to each other. There were different groups within the encampment who were organizing around certain issues. One was to protect the encampment. Uh, Another was to get a community land trust where the encampment could move and they would not be uh, disrupted by police brutality. And there were mental. I was a medic there, and, and there were also a lot of mental health crises. As the threat of sweeps increased, the uh, trauma and stress of the encampment went up, and it became a less safe environment. Whereas before, it had been centered around community care, but with that oppressive and threat of violence coming their way, it it, it you saw it turn internally against each other because the stress was and the trauma was not something that was well managed. So it it was very interesting seeing how when it, the system puts pressure on communities and people that that turns into interpersonal violence, and that if we want to alleviate that, which we're having a problem with in Philadelphia and, and across the country. And we need to recognize that the system is putting that pressure and not providing the relief that we need to move away from that place of violence.
1: What did that experience teach you about yourself as an individual, Um, not just as a crisis responder, but also just as, you know, yourself, what did those experience uh, experiences do for you?
2: It, it taught, I mean, you learn about yourself in every one of your experiences and it taught me that I really don't care what a person can do for me, or what sort of money they have, or material things—I am capable of caring about people who don't have much, and I develop relationships with people who are unhoused and friendships. And I—I I get phone calls from people who use the the public Philadelphia phones of just you know check in. I'm, I'm alive, I'm okay, this is what's going on. Yes, I heard about the heat wave and this is how I'm staying hydrated and um, it's, the the relationships are are real and I don't think a lot of people, one of the things that I learned from folks living at the encampment that they often lose relationships with people if they don't have a home that they're discriminated against and that just wasn't the case with, the
1: relationships I was able to build. its amazing. now I guess too, like, what was that like to be under that constant threat? Cause I worked in the city for a period of time during, you know, the unrest around the time with the George Floyd murder and things of like that. And it always, it felt like everything was just, you could cut the tension with a knife. Um, and that was only in specific, you know, sections or pockets that I was in while I was working. You were there pretty much, it sounds like every day, like on the ground. What does that do to you from a from a mental standpoint? Um, someone who may not be in, in mental crisis or, or, you know, uh, issues of that nature. What's that like for you to feel that pressure all the time where just something could immediately pop off?
2: Yeah, you're, you're watching your back and you have to be hyper diligent of, of what's happening around you of, Oh, is, is that a trash truck that's pulling up? Is that a police officer standing over there? Are they coming now? Um, and then, at the same time, trying to recognize when people need your support versus when they need space. And then, some organizers uh, also had breakdowns too, because there's the recognition that when something this stressful is coming, that not everyone is going to make it out okay, and and we want we we a trauma response is to live in a black and white world where it's all or nothing. And you have to, in order to be able to move through the difficulty of making progress, you have to recognize that not everyone, not everything is going to be achieved. Not everyone is going to be okay on the other side, but if we can get a majority, that's the goal. If we can take those steps to a better place, that's the goal. And that's very hard to wrap your head around when you're right in the middle
1: of it. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Now, I know that you announced your candidacy for the third congressional district of Pennsylvania uh, around February of 2021. And uh, as in all things on Twitter, which I feel like it has gotten worse uh, recently since, uh, since uh, Elmo has taken over, um, you had your internet trolls and uh, somebody yeah. took a shot at you and said that they couldn't wait for you to start your OnlyFans account uh, after the, uh, after the election was over. And so you called their bluff and did it. I want to talk more about that because I'm, you know, I, I love, I've had conversations and guests on the show before who are in sex work and who are, you know, big in the sex positivity movement. Tell me about that decision that you made once that happened. I want to explore that a little bit with you.
2: So that, I mean, internet trolls, yeah, but there was not just one. Right. Uh, and I, I, I think that also working with, with part of my story being that during college I worked as a stripper, uh, the bias that was against me was that I'm a con artist, I'm a grifter. And, and whereas if somebody had my story of being like creating a business out of nothing, then they would be called a successful businessman. It whereas I'm a con artist, so yeah, there there was that that shade cast of um, you can't wait for you to be a loser on OnlyFans, and and I was like, this this is not something to be ashamed of, and this is not a space for losers, and actually, a lot of creators are really thriving with OnlyFans. Um, so I was like, I'll make one, and I really had no bigger plan of what I was going to do with the page or what like what I would do with it, but the point was to, to make one in response. And now I've had an OnlyFans page for a little over a year and it's been productive. Um, I, I know that it's, it is not tied to the campaign. Let me make that clear. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it, there's been really important conversations. There's a lot of people who agree with the My Politics, and we have conversations about politics. We have conversations about what's happening in the world. And then at the same time, there's a conversation about sex positivity and body positivity, uh, feminism, and what all of that looks like through an OnlyFans page. <laughs>
1: What's been some of the more, what's been the most positive response that you've gotten from one of your supporters or someone who, you know, maybe was struggling with their, their body image or anything else in that moment when you, when you reclaimed that narrative for yourself? What was the best response that you got from that?
2: From the OnlyFans?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: From one of the supporters yes. of it? I, I, OnlyFans themselves, the company loved it, loved that I was on it. Um, creators loved it, loved that they, they were feeling the empowerment of like, no, this isn't something to be ashamed of. Um, and then, yeah, I think the supporters on it, like the combination of like spicy politics is what I call it. And, uh, that, yeah, it's just what, like it's activism and, and pushing, pushing the the boundaries around the mentality of if you have fewer clothes on, then therefore you're deserving of less respect, which just isn't the case. You can be fully naked and command the room.
1: Right. I want to talk about some more of your, your, pol- your political stances. And I wanted to just get an idea of where you stand right now. Because I know, you know, you talk about mass incarceration, you're for Medicare for all, the Green New Deal. What would you say is the most important issue facing our generation right now?
2: Uh, the climate crisis, it, as we spoke about. That, that is existential. We need to respond to it now. We need to respond to it yesterday and a decade ago. But the politics of greed that we are trapped in and the neglect that of the, the world that's giving us A place to live, it it is rapidly deteriorating, and you were experiencing that with the heat wave. But that's causing problems in the ocean. We're we're part of an ecosystem, and what capitalism does is it creates this very individualistic mindset where you're like, okay, do I have the house? Do I have the money in the bank account? Do I have the stocks? And you're not seeing how you're part of this this massive ecosystem where if something moves this way, other things shift and we all kind of affect each other. So the climate crisis is the, the biggest problem that we need to address as for my own personal interests, what, which policy point interests me the most, that would be health uh, healthcare for everybody, universal healthcare.
1: Now, obviously I hope you run again, you know, coming up soon, we have an election cycle coming up next. What would be the first steps you would take? If you were elected to, you know, a state level position, a national level position, what would you do in order to try to enact some of those things and get those initiatives moving?
2: You have to really power map. You have to figure out who are the major players in getting things done. You, so, for instance, I did not win this last race, which was for city controller. And there were some things that I ran on that still need to be accomplished. And I'm still attempting to accomplish outside of being elected to that position. You have to figure out who can help push for those things. You create a coalition of people who are aligned with whatever it is that you're attempting to do or sway people who are on the fence about what you're attempting to do and try to get them aligned and then create a a majority of people who are going to support it.
1: Now, with the election, I know, you know, it's only July 2023, but we're already focusing well ahead into 2024. Uh, As far as from a national level, I know there's been a lot of talk about, you know, Donald Trump. And recently, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. uh, has been in the news quite frequently. Um, What do you think is going to be the most important issue for voters this year in a national sense? And where do you see the race heading going forward?
2: I think that nationally we are going to see we're going to take some significant losses. And I think that's because with Democrats, there is a lack of boldness and a a lack of courage and a lack of uh, urgency. And without that, we have seen some major steps back during Biden's first term and those steps back rightfully or wrongfully are attributed to Biden and Democrats. Um, and so people are going to step away from voting and it's going to lead to greater voting apathy because they're like, well, my vote doesn't matter. We fought so hard to get Biden in and we, we lost the, uh, Abortion rights. We've, we've lost, we thought we had a student debt cancellation. Um, we're backtracking on LGBTQ rights and, and, uh, things are, things are not looking good. So I, there's, I think nationally we're going to see some pretty big losses politically. And I think that we need to concentrate locally and statewide if we're going to be able to protect, anyone from what's coming
1: yeah it feels very uh soul crushing (laughs) when you look at things sort of in in a large broad sense um specifically after the overturn of roe v wade and then especially with the student debt relief um do you think there's anything that can be done from a national level that can attract voters to come back or and if not what can be done at the local and the state level to just maintain and make sure that a lot of those rights are protected here
2: So, with with the at the national level, we saw that that gridlock over the election of the speaker of the house, mm-hmm. the, and that to me showed that really not much would get done. There there weren't going to be a lot of wins happening at the national level. We we can theoretically say we need to expand the Supreme Court to to, uh, decrease its radicalization. Um, but that's logically that's not going to pass because it didn't pass last time with democratic majority in both the Senate and the house. Um, so that's just very unlikely to happen. Uh, so yeah, we need to concentrate on States that we can win and protect people's rights. We need to concentrate on local protections that, that can protect people's rights And uh, I I do think, again, that we're going to see some major losses at the national level. And I'm not trying to discourage people. I think that it's important to be civically engaged and to go vote and to uh, continue to be part of that fight. But the way that that Congress is set up right now, I don't see a lot of wins coming through for everyday people.
1: What do you want people— to know most about you? What do you want people to understand most about you? Uh you know, obviously like I said, I I would love to see you run again, you know, in the state sense or in the national sense. If someone is asking, you know, who is Alexandra Hunt, what do you want everyone to know about you and understand the most?
2: Hmm. Um I am a curious person who enjoys learning and I have a big heart and my politics and my advocacy is shaped by a politics of love. And this, it's an expression of that. Um, And uh, otherwise the, I, I don't, I don't want to be put in a box. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show today, taking time to chat with me uh, and getting to know you more and letting my listeners get to know you more. Where can people keep up to date with everything you have going on on social media um, and your OnlyFans? Where can they find you online?
2: So OnlyFans page is Alexandra M. Hunt. And then my Instagram and TikTok and Facebook is the Alexandra Hunt And Twitter, if you still are on Twitter, (laughs) is Hunt the number four change.
1: I don't know how many of us are on Twitter as much as it's like, hey, we're going to use this when it's not broken three or four times a day, but still there uh, for now. Um, Alexandra Hutt, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to having you back on the show again.
2: Thanks for having me. It was good meeting you.
0: Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and produced by Adam Barnard. Additional production and narration provided by Sam Kreps. The show was mixed and engineered by Carl Pinnell. Our intro and outro music was performed and produced by Dumb Ugly. Additional musical accompaniment provided by Enrichment. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Elmi Follow us on Twitter at FND Radio Pod And find our entire archive at FoundationRadio.net. This has been a bunch of Butts Carlton Media Production. Butts Carlton Proprietor.